As a Christian pastor, I have the, the duty and privilege and calling uh, to time and time again point you to Christ, to open the Bible with you and show you and help hopefully help you see to see how great Christ is, to see that He's powerful, to see that He has authority, to see that He, he is gracious and compassionate. All of that seeking to have you trust Him. My calling, among so many other things, primarily is to, to help you to see Christ for who He is so that you might trust Him. And if you trust Him, to have you trust Him more uh, and to trust Him even more. That's what, what I do, and we do this a lot. We do it weekly, sometimes more than that, to see Jesus for who He really is so that you might trust Him. Well, today we have yet another great opportunity to see Jesus' trustworthiness because we'll see Jesus curing the incurable and we'll see Jesus raising the dead. Now, what's kind of strange right now is I see no enthusiasm. I predicted that. If I were sitting where you're sitting and not preaching this sermon, I would have been just like you. You would have been more excited if I would have said, we're going to have open mic this morning and everybody's going to tell us what they barbecued this weekend. Oh, how? Edge of my seat. What was it that we had? And, or maybe I could talk about something like that. That's exciting. But the reality is we do this so often and you've heard it before. We gather like this, and I stand here and say, today we're going to look at the historic account where Jesus cures the incurable. And we go, when reality is He cures the uncurable, and we're going to look at a historic account of that, it's like edge of our seat kind of stuff. And in reality, or, or then to follow it up with something far bigger than that, to say, oh, today we're going to talk about how Jesus, and we're going to look at the historic account, how Jesus of Nazareth, Raise someone from the dead. Say, what? Are you kidding me? Raise the dead? I'm bringing someone with me next week if we're going to talk about something like that. Because that can't be done. That simply can't be done. I don't know of anybody who could raise the dead or cure the incurable by nature of the fact that they're incurable. And that's why we need to maybe be a little startled by what we're used to sometimes. Luke chapter 8 is our text. If you haven't already turned there, turn there with me in your Bible. We're going to see Jesus cure the incurable and Jesus raise the dead. Now, maybe to get you more interested, I'll appeal to your maybe your lower senses. Uh, let me introduce a little controversy um, just to get your attention, to get you listening to it. Here, here are some of the titles I was tempted to use today to get your attention. I was tempted to say today we're going to see that Jesus is not a Christian scientist. A little controversial because I know people, I knew people growing up who were Christian scientists. And I don't mean people who are Christians and scientists, but part of the religion, Christian science. Jesus is not a Christian scientist. And by the way, as John MacArthur likes to say, it's neither Christian nor science, sort of like grape nuts. Um, it's neither grapes nor nuts. Uh, Christian science is neither Christian nor science. It has nothing to do with either one. My point in using that provocative kind of title, even though it's not too popular of a religion, Jesus is not a Christian scientist because Christian science teaches that there's no actual thing as sickness. It's not real. 
we're going to see that Jesus thinks sickness is real. He thinks it's so real that he heals someone from sickness. We're going to see that Jesus thinks death is real. Christian science, it's an illusion. It's not real. Jesus thinks it's real. Jesus believes, like the whole Bible teaches, that because of humanity's rebellion through Adam, our representative, this world is cursed with death. And death is real. And Jesus is going to really, physically, raise the dead. We're going to see it right here in this historic account. I was tempted to say, sermon title, Jesus is not a Gnostic. Gnostics believe that spirit is good, physical, matter, it's bad. So all that's important is the spiritual and the physical is not important. It's bad or, or it's irrelevant at best. We're going to see that to Jesus, spirit is good and important. Matter, physical, is good and important. Remember, Christianity teaches the incarnation of Jesus. That He came to earth, born of a virgin, physically, actually one of us, part of the human race, so that He could represent us, so that He could live for us, so that He could atone for us, so that He could be bodily, bodily raised from the dead. And here we're going to see Jesus caring about people spiritually, absolutely, but caring for people physically. You should be glad because you're a physical being regardless of what Gnosticism might teach you. My aches and pains remind me that I'm not a Gnostic. You should be glad Jesus raises the dead physically. And I'm thankful because my time's limited and I want a Savior who can resurrect me physically. I was tempted to say today's sermon should be entitled, Jesus is not a Darwinian. Jesus is not a Darwinian. Darwinism teaches progress through death. Progress through death. Jesus doesn't see a a sick person and say, isn't this wonderful? If we just let this go, she'll die, and that's progress. Let's have a party. A a, a young girl who's 12 12 years old dies and Jesus doesn't say, let's have a celebration. I'm a Darwinist. Progress through death. The Bible teaches and Jesus would have believed and believes death is a result of human rebellion. It comes from God as an act of judgment. By the way, no one, I shouldn't say that. That's an overstatement. Never say always and never. Anyway, I just violated the rule. But you know how it goes. There are very few rubber-meets-the-road Darwinists. At least not at funerals. Can you imagine if I officiated a funeral and said, I just want you to know, dearly beloved, we're gathered here, and isn't this a wonderful thing that your mom just died? Progress. Those would be the last words I would speak if anybody in that family had any backbone, right? This is not a celebration of progress. This is a horrible thing. We say sometimes, well, it's just natural. No, it's not. 
It's a result of rebellion which brings death. The wages of sin is death. Jesus didn't see this as progress. Jesus, as the hopeful Savior, shows that He can undo the mess that isn't progress, and He can bring restoration, and He can bring resurrected life. It's awesome. Well, I won't go on with my sermon titles. Maybe one more. I thought about saying, Jesus is not a theological liberal. Truth were to be known, I actually thought about putting denominational names in there, but I'm way above that. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, churches that don't believe in supernatural things. Jesus was not a naturalist. Jesus was not a theological liberal who didn't believe in resurrection, didn't believe in supernatural healing. He most certainly did because he did them. He absolutely does them. He believes in the supernatural. He's not saying, well, we know that this can't be true because we can't produce it in a lab. He cures the incurable because he's extraordinary. And you can trust him for extraordinary things. He raises the dead, though no one can raise the dead. It's sort of the point. If he's the one and only Savior who you can trust in for resurrection, it just makes sense. Well, all of that to say, the message today is about Jesus restoring health to someone who couldn't be helped by others and raising the dead bodily. And it's designed to help you and help me and people like us to see why Jesus is worthy of your trust. Why He's the one and only worthy Savior. We're going to look at how, how, how Jesus is the one who undoes the doings of Adam, if you will. And how we would want to trust in Him. I can't wait for us to see the trustworthiness of Jesus yet again. If you're just joining us, you might want to glance at Luke chapter 1 just to kind of help you understand what's happening and as a way of review for everyone else. Uh, Luke 8 is where we're going to be, but Luke 1 helps us to see what Luke is up to, what Luke is trying to do here. Uh, And it's particularly particularly important just to see this. Luke 1, 1 says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative..." of the things that have been accomplished among us. Notice Luke is writing history. Things that have been accomplished, not just in our imaginations or in our uh, desires, but things that have been accomplished among us. He's writing as a historian. Verse 2, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers or servants of the word have delivered them to us. It's also important, just as a reminder, Luke's not trying to say, and anybody who's ever talked about this is wrong and I'm the only right one. Usually that's a great sign of shenanigans. He's saying, I'm trying to do here for you, and he's going to tell us who he's writing for, to do what others have done for you. We would understand that others could be Matthew or Mark or John. I'm going to provide a different camera angle, if you will, on the same historic events. I'm not trying to be novel in particular, although there might be some different emphases. Let's keep reading then, verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Somebody we don't really know, someone who is some sort of dignitary, and someone who trusts Luke. Luke, by the way, according to Colossians 4.14, is a medical doctor. 
Uh, so it's someone who's, who's a professional, um, not a mere herdsman, if you will, uh, and someone who would therefore be prone to detail as an educated individual. Verse 4 says that you, ta- writing to this person, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. I love to call the gospel according to Luke the gospel of certainty. It's, it's written with a desire to help this man and people like him read you and me to understand the history in some detail so that we might have certainty about our trust in Christ. That's what we're seeking to see here. That's what the overall intent is. Now let's jump in. Chapter 8, verse 40 says, Now when Jesus returned... This is returning to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's in the Galilean region, the northern region in Israel. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Notice the emphasis uh, to be put on all. At this point in time, when you read through the gospel narrative, Jesus is popular. Uh, The word is out about Jesus. He's helping people. He's feeding people. He's doing things that others can't normally do. He's gracious. He's kind. He's willing. And so people are on the Jesus bandwagon. You probably would be too. I probably would be too. Not everybody likes him. Some religious leaders are feeling threatened by him. But by and large, Jesus is where it's at. And so there they are following him. Verse 41, And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. A ruler of the synagogue is someone who oversees, who provides leadership of the synagogue. Uh, What's a synagogue, you might ask, uh, or you might not ask, but I think it would help to understand. Realize that down in the south you have the temple, okay, Jerusalem. But not everyone can go to the temple as much as they would want to. And they still want to worship and they still want to gather with the people of God. They still want to hear the word of God. They still want to uh, have fellowship together and pray together. And so we might say they're satellites. They're synagogues. And so they would gather together and they would gather together for again. They would recite the Shema. Hear, O Lord, uh, the Lord our God is one. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And people would do that and people would pray together. and They would read the scriptures or have it read, and then someone would expound upon the scriptures, and uh, not altogether different from a worship service that we would experience. This man is a ruler; he's in charge. He gives oversight. He gives guidance in the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, it says, he implored, he begged, he begged him to come to his house. Forty-two says, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. 12 years old, first century, Palestine, prime of life, pretty good guess. About marrying age, pretty good guess from what we know historically. And it's his only daughter. Okay, so he knows about Jesus, maybe firsthand, maybe by reputation, maybe both. His only daughter is dying. You put yourself in his shoes. You do anything. You do anything to try to save your daughter that you care about and you love. You would do this if it weren't your only daughter. If you're any kind of parent and you know about this Jesus, you know enough to know There's hope. 
It's no wonder he's begging Jesus. He doesn't care if he doesn't look dignified. You wouldn't care either. He doesn't care what people might think. You wouldn't care either. There might be help for my daughter. And this man has a reputation for power and he has a reputation for graciousness because he actually helps people. He's not someone with empty words. We can relate. We can understand. Then verse 42 goes on to say, And Jesus went. The people pressed around him. It doesn't say he said yes, but he, he essentially does, right? This man begs him for help, and so Jesus goes with him. It says he went, and so Jesus is, is essentially agreeing. And yet there's this great crowd because he's popular. Literally, they're, they're crushing him. They're pressing in on him. There's, they're not literally crushing him, but that's, that's the, the sense of the word. There's this massive crowd, and he's going to help her. But then the drama gets even more dramatic because there's an interruption. 43 says, and there was a woman. And you kind of go, where'd she come from? Well, she came from the crowd. But we need to be thinking at this point in time, somebody get her out of the way. Crowd control, you know, somebody... Because the, the girl is dying and, and Jesus has agreed to go and help her. And so we got to get Jesus to her quickly because she's dying and she might die. And so we have to really get in there quickly. And so, and obviously that's a greater need than someone who has a lesser need. The drama elevates. Intentionally so. And we'll talk more about why. But for now, let's see what it says in verse 43. Again, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Some sort of hemorrhaging problem. Female bleeding kind of problem. It's unstoppable. It goes on to say, and though she had spent all her living on physicians. She could not be healed by anyone. Remember Colossians 4, Dr. Luke. Just makes it all the more interesting. This writing the historical narrative. No doctor could help her. Now, if you're this woman, or if this were happening now, you'd say, that's hard. That's difficult. Some of you struggle with chronic kinds of issues. Say, it's miserable. If I would have been living then, or let's reverse it, if Jesus were living now, and I know that he's a willing kind of savior. He's powerful. She wants help. We can, we can get it. We can relate to that. But now go back and put it in that culture, Jewish culture. Not only are you miserable physically, you're miserable emotionally on a different level, not just because of the physical. Because according to Levitical law, you're in a constant state of ceremonial uncleanliness. We're not going to go to Leviticus and, and trace all that down, but you, you couldn't worship the way your friends worshipped. Because according to Old Testament law, there are prohibitions related to blood and to bleeding and this is a constant state for you if you're this woman. And so she's miserable on the physical side. She's miserable on the social side, the societal tied to the religion. She, she's just been longing to worship with her friends and have fellowship with her family as they would worship God. 
This is a tough go. This is a hard life for this woman. Mark's account's a little harsher on the doctors. Mark 5.26 says, Who had suffered much under many physicians. And it ends by saying it grew worse. Maybe Luke's looking out for his own and doesn't throw all the doctors under the bus. I don't know. Both say the same thing and both are telling the truth, but Mark's a little bit more blunt about it. The physicians not only didn't help and she gave her life savings, they actually made it worse. She's incurable. She's miserable. Verse 44, let's keep going, says, She came up behind him and and, and touched the fringe of his garment. And immediately her discharge of blood ceased. She comes up behind him, probably because if she comes up in front of him, she's afraid that he's not going to touch her. He's not going to heal her because then he'll be ceremonially unclean. And, And so what she does is she takes the stealth approach. And maybe if I could just touch him, maybe if I could just touch his clothes, something will happen. And here it says, sound effect, immediately, which is one of the favorite words to use when it comes to the miraculous by the gospel accounts. It's a way for us to see that this is not talking about some sort of huckster like you might see on TV. And over time, progressively or whatever, blah, blah, blah. No, this is touch, done. Instantaneous. Wow. You say, that can't be done because all the doctors tried to do that. That's right, it can't be done because all the doctors tried to do that. And what did they do? They made it worse. Jesus Cures the incurable is the point, and all of this is designed, I want to just remind you, to help us see the trustworthiness of Jesus. Verse 45 says, And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? Just put your finger there for a second. And and whose benefit does he ask that question for? Oh, I don't know who touched me. I don't know. I don't think so. As a matter of fact, based upon what's going to happen, I'm quite certain he doesn't ask for anyone's benefit other than everybody else's. Let's make this all clear. Who touched me? Let's let's make this a public event. Let's make sure we understand what just happened here. Not out of uh, ignorant inquiry. Let's keep going. When all denied it, gotta love Peter. (laughs) You can have him as the first pope. Anyway... (laughs) Peter said, uh, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. You see what's happening? Jesus goes, who touched me? Uh, Jesus, uh, haven't you noticed that um, everyone's touching you? <laughs> it's like, Jesus, stop asking like you're from Nazareth. <laughs> That's a dumb question. But it's not a dumb question. Yes, everyone's touching him, but Jesus wants to make a point. Someone touched him and something extraordinary happened. Peter Peter doesn't understand that, but he's about ready to understand understand that. And I'm about ready to speak English. Um, Verse 46 says, But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. 47 says, And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, not hidden, I take it she's not hidden from Jesus. Which is, that's why I think when he asked the question, he's asking for everyone else's benefit. What do you mean she's not hidden? Everybody's touching Jesus. There's no way people would know that it was her. 
She's not hidden. She's perfectly hidden because everybody was touching Jesus who was close. She's not hidden from Jesus' gaze. She knows she's busted. Right? That's what's happening. She was not hidden. She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Miraculous, immediately. It just provides a great opportunity for a public confession. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of being healed. I touched him like nobody else touched him. I touched him because I thought he could heal me if I touched him. I touched him because I trusted that he could heal me if I touched him. And it happened. It happened. It's great. Verse 48 says, And he said to her daughter, How about that? Daughter? Closeness. Here's a woman in the culture that few people wanted to be close to. Few read none, at least publicly, because she was ceremonially unclean. Jesus, we have no reason to believe he's related to her, says, daughter, family, close, I'll claim you as mine. It's so good. Nobody wants to claim her. He claims her with familial language. It's awesome. Then he says, your faith is has made you well. Go in peace. Your faith has made you well. Now I hope someday I can stop doing this. I hope maybe the next generation or the next generation when, when I'm dead and gone, um, preachers at Omaha Bible Church don't have to keep doing this, but I think I need to because I, I, I want to help as a good missionary equipper and as a good missionary in our culture. Please make sure you see that for what it really is getting at. Jesus says to her, your faith has made you well. What's the object of her faith? Who's the object of her faith? Herself? She just believed strong enough and since she had such strong faith in herself, she overcame her problem. But when you talk to people about Christ and Christianity and you talk about faith, that's how they hear you. And it's no wonder they think faith is nonsense because you're trusting in nonsense because you're trusting in the untrustworthy. You look at it in its context. Your faith has made you well. What's he saying? I think all of you know what he's saying. I'm just belaboring the point so you can be a good missionary to our culture. Your faith in me has made you well. She's trusting that Jesus has the power to do the undoable. And that's not irrational because he's got a track record established in history for doing the undoable. And so her faith is not nonsense. It's actually reasonable. Because he's shown himself to be the one who can do this sort of thing. Your faith, your faith in me. It, doesn't, it shouldn't need to say that, but we're kind of at a place where we actually need to point that out. Your faith has made you well. 
Go in peace. Go, go in shalom. We could probably look at that at different levels. Not exactly sure where we should split it up. I, I would imagine she has subjective good feelings of peace. Like peace of mind. <sighs> but how about another kind of peace? She's trusted in Jesus as the supernatural powerful one who can do what nobody else can do for her. Exactly how much she understands at this point in time, we don't know. But all of this is aimed toward helping us see Jesus is trustworthy. And when you trust in Jesus, ultimately you end up having reconciliation with God and you have peace with God, which is further developed as we see the gospel account and the book of Acts. Remember, Luke and Acts go together, not to, imagine, not to mention what is developed even further. It's fascinating. I just want to pause to encourage you, remind you of the obvious. Jesus is trustworthy. You should trust Him. Faith means trust. Jesus is trustworthy. You should trust Him. As you suffer on all different sorts of levels, because you do... Some more than others, some more pronounced than others, some chronically, some not so much. You've got to know Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus isn't here on earth as he was then. Let's not confuse categories. Jesus ascended. Jesus is at his right hand, the right hand of his Father. He sent his Spirit until he returns again. We read from 1 John chapter 3 early, earlier when we see Him and I'll be made like Him, we'll be glorified in the future. But He came to earth to do this sort of thing for people like you and people like me so that we would know that He is trustworthy amidst our suffering so that we can ultimately, because this is the story's not over here in Luke chapter 8, ultimately look forward to the Christ who is going to return following His resurrection and bring us not only reconciliation with God, but restoration, including physical restoration. And so we look at historic accounts like this and we say, Jesus can do this. He can do this. Now remember, this woman died. There's no reason to believe that she lived forever. There's every reason to believe she suffered in other ways later. But she could trust Jesus for ultimate restoration and ultimate healing because He proved that He was trustworthy by what He did for her and for others. And I so badly want you to get that. He's a trustworthy Savior. He's a trustworthy restorer. I remember the first time I asked the doctor about something that was weird, you know, something odd um, with my health. The first time I asked and the doctor basically thought about whether or not we should fix it. 
It was so shocking to me. It was like that the first face-to-face kind of from a doctor, my mortality. Eh, is it worth fixing or not? He's already thinking about me dying. How dare he? Because <laughs> as a kid, you're growing up, you're just thinking, you know, you break something, you get it fixed. You got some kind of mole or something, they take it off. You got some kind of problem, you have a surgery. And here it was, eh, we could, or we could let it go. What? Broken world. Not because of progress, but because of the effects of sin. Jesus showed us, while He was on earth, with historians writing multiple camera angles, not just one guy who, you know, had some kind of weird vision, multiple angles that He is trustworthy to bring not only spiritual reconciliation, but physical restoration. He's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your trust as a holistic Savior. Because we're holistic people. Let's move on now. All of a sudden, we're back to what first came up in verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house, that elder from the synagogue, from the ruler's house, came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. For those of you who like to be technical, is dead. Your daughter is dead. Perfect tense Greek word. Has died. She has died and she's staying dead. And you think to yourself, naturally, oh no. If only... And what about... And now this, this dad has no hope anymore. And the girl certainly has no hope. And her family has no hope. And if only Jesus would have said, I'll take care of the most important thing first, the most time-sensitive thing first, and then I'll do that, she could have maybe lived. Because Jesus has power. She's dead. Jesus has made a tragic error. Or so we might think. I mean, what happens when you go to the ER? I mean, the, the person with the gunshot gets in before you if you have a cut on your finger. Right? For all intents and purposes, Jesus should have helped the dying girl first. The other ladies had the problem for 12 years. She can wait however long she needs to wait, and Jesus could handle it that way. Moral of the story is when you go to the ER, lie. No, it's not, it's not really the case. Um, this, this looks dumb. This looks errant. But what it really is is an opportunity for Jesus to, to show that He's in charge, He's in control. And if He can raise the dead... Let me give you an opportunity to see how I do it. That's what it is. What looks unreasonable, what looks like not the way we would do it. How about that? It's not the way I would do it. It's not how they do it in the ER. It's the way he does it. Because it provides a platform for him to help you and to help me to see that he doesn't always do things the way we would want them done, but also to show that he's trustworthy. 
He can do the seemingly undoable. How about verse 50? But Jesus, on hearing this, answered them, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Something you might not see in your English translation is the fact that believe is a command. Do not fear, only believe. It's called an aorist imperative and it packs a punch. Do not fear, believe. Believe. And again, once again, it's pretty obvious. It's not believe in belief. It's believe in me. You need to believe in me. You need to trust in me. You need to have your confidence in me. I, I, I can do this. I, I didn't need your counsel. I didn't need your lecture. I didn't need your rationale. You, you can count on me. So therefore, strongly he says, do. Verse 51, And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. Why? We don't know. Verse 52 says, And all were weeping and mourning for her. That at least tells us something important. Um, she's not asleep. Regardless of what you've read ahead, she's not asleep. You don't have, you don't push the mourning button and the weeping button until somebody's dead. Okay? She's not in a coma. Her heart's not beating. She has no pulse. She's dead. You, you, don't, you don't do the mourning thing. By the way, and sometimes they would hire professional mourners. I'm not suggesting that's who these are. They might be. But that would be like a normal kind of thing. You're going to have a funeral. Well, you know, you're going to make sure you order flowers and you're going to make sure you have a motorcade. And there are certain things that we do and they're customary to do. Why? I don't always know. But there are things we do. And in this culture, you would have mourning if you're the family, yes. But you would even, if you're going to put on a good funeral and show respect, you would even hire some mourners. They're already mourning. So enough time has passed for them to call for mourning. She's not dying. She's, she's dead. But then if you keep reading in verse 52, I'll sound like a contradiction. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And... I really hate to be the one to correct Jesus, but she's not sleeping. She's dead. You know. What I mean by that is believers then and after in Bible times refer to the death of believers oftentimes as sleep. Because if there's hope they're going to wake up, okay? Remember um, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead? John chapter 11, verse 11. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'll go awaken him. Lazarus hadn't fallen asleep. <laughs> Some of you who are uh, old enough to, to be raised on King James, King James English is stuck in your mind. What does it say about Lazarus? By this time he stinketh, <laughs> okay? Even by now, some of us who weren't raised on King James, we know how it is. By this time, he stinketh. 
Lazarus is most certainly verifiably so much dead that he stinketh dead. Okay? That's how dead he is. And Jesus says he's not dead, he's sleeping. Same idea here. The girl is most certainly dead. And Jesus says, she's not dead. She's sleeping. Why? Because, just like with Lazarus, there's hope. Temporary. He's going to raise her from the dead. It's awesome. First Thessalonians 5 also talks about believers as asleep. People like you and people like me, we're going to die. But it says we're asleep. It's a euphemism. It's a positive way of saying it. And it's not just a euphemism. It's actually theologically correct because when Christ returns, we'll be raised bodily from the dead. Look what it says in verse 53 as we wrap this up. And they laughed at him. What a contrast. They were mourning and now they're laughing knowing that she was dead. Verse 54 says, look there with me if you would. But taking her by the hand, he called saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once. That's just like our verse 44. Immediately. At once, it's supernatural, this happens. Then it says, and he directed that something should be given her to eat. I've always found that fascinating. Why did he do that? A good guess is to show that she's completely, entirely, and absolutely healed. It's not, well, you know what, what we need to do is kind of get her to the next phase and then we'll introduce some liquids and then we'll introduce some solids no dead um fix her a meal fully restored supernatural undoable but he does the undoable 56 then says and her parents were amazed it's not the norm this wasn't happening on a daily basis this wasn't norm even when jesus was around they're amazed but he charged them to tell no one what had happened We see that tension going throughout the gospel accounts. Sometimes Jesus, just with the, uh, the account we looked at a couple of weeks ago with uh, a demon-possessed guy. Go tell. Your people. Don't tell. Your people. No doubt because Jesus is in charge and orchestrating. Um, ultimately, he's going to the cross. Ultimately, he's giving himself up to be crucified to atone for sin. Uh, ultimately, how about this? He's not on planet Earth in the first century to raise all dead people from the dead. Or he would have done it. Ultimately, when he was here on earth, he wasn't trying to keep the Christian community healthy. Or he would have done it. Make sure you understand that. He was here to show that he really is the Savior. He really is the one who undoes the doing of the first Adam, which means he's really here to undo the curse that's brought because of sin. That's why he's here. That's exactly why he's here, to show he's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. We won't take the time to go there, but if you want to to jot down 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 23. Also, Luke 4, uh, Isaiah 61. uh, Just important passages that have to do with the fact that Jesus himself will go and die on purpose. And Jesus will be bodily raised from the dead on purpose. And then there's that great promise. He's referred to as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
He's talking about believers. He's talking about all believers. Believers like you and believers like me. That's what we celebrate at Easter. We celebrate the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Why do we celebrate it? Well, because He, being raised from the dead, is the first fruits of all of us and will be raised from the dead. And if we're trusting in Him, the one who has the power to raise other people from the dead, and then He Himself said, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. And He did. Here we are again. He's trustworthy. He's trustworthy. All of these other resurrections, all of these other healings were for us to know that He can do it, that He's willing to do it, and then He gives Himself up, and then He is raised, and then we're called to trust Him. To trust Him. It's amazing to think about. And then you read the book of Acts and you see the, the, the further development of these things, and there's the call again, echoing Jesus' call, believe on the Lord Jesus. Acts 16, and you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your bad health. Saved from your dying body. Yeah, but why? Because you're part of a fallen human race in Adam, saved from the judgment of God. But he's a holistic savior. Saving you spiritually, reconciled to God, absolutely. But saving you as a whole person, because God is the one who made the world made human beings physical and spiritual and says, it is good. And Christ Jesus brings restoration. He is going to bring everything back to the way it should be. And if you're trusting in Him, you will be raised from the dead. And your death is actually not permanent, so it's called sleep. And we wait for Christ so when we see Him at His return, we'll be made like Him. That's your hope. You, you, you need Christ. Spiritually and physically. As a person who's spiritual and physical. One more thing to, to help you think through Luke and the big picture of Jesus' ministry. In chapter 4, you, you hear this emphasis of Jesus preaching the kingdom. And then in chapter 4, he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and quotes Isaiah 61, which is a kingdom text. It's a new covenant text. And he says it's been fulfilled in your, in your hearing. And it talks about not only new covenant, which has to do with atonement, but it also talks about bringing healing to people who are sick. It's this whole package. And if the kingdom is coming, guess what? The king rules and reigns, and he rules and reigns. Not a broken kingdom, but a true kingdom where things are the way they should be. And so we're reconciled to God through atonement. We're restored to new creation status which is why the Spirit of God was upon Him, just like at creation, first creation, you've got creation, new creation in Christ, Spirit there too. It gets exciting when you start putting the pieces together and you start thinking about these things. Trust in Christ because He's trustworthy. Father, thank You for our time this morning. Thank You for this, this foretaste that we have from history when Jesus was on earth. And we are grateful that He's not dead. And we're grateful that He is coming again. And we're grateful that if we have that hope fixed in our hearts and our minds, it brings spiritual growth. It brings purity, as John says in 1 John. Lord, 
supernaturally by the power of your spirit, help us to see Jesus for who he really is. Grant saving faith, grant grant sanctifying faith, that your people might be built up in the faith, that we might find ourselves uh, responding in gratitude and thanksgiving, that we wouldn't be able to help from opening our mouths and speaking well of Jesus. And Lord, we would ask for many opportunities to be good and faithful ambassadors that we might point others to Christ as well. In Jesus' name, amen.